by a, a Christian writer and speaker named Leonard Sweet. Leonard greets people in a very particular way that I want to greet you this morning. He, he starts off by saying, welcome, saints. Yeah, y'all are crickets again like first service was. And then he goes, welcome, sinners. Again, not many people saying whether they're saint or sinner. Hopefully you fall somewhere in the middle of the two of those things. Um, well, welcome to Hydrant. Um, if I haven't met you, my name is Dustin. I am not a pastor here. Um, but Tim and Anita, two of our pastors on staff, the lead and worship pastors, are on sabbatical for the next eight weeks. So for the next four weeks, including this Sunday, you have me. So if the crowd gets thinner next week, I understand why. But nevertheless, whether you're a, a longtime partner or just here for the first Sunday, we want to say welcome and thank you for being with us, knowing there's so many other places that we could be today. Um, I've been asked to speak over the next couple of weeks, and, and what I've chosen to do is kind of a series on something that I am a little fond of. See, growing up, I was a kid that loved to be told stories. Um, I think it started at a very early age with my great-grandmother who lived with my grandparents who was born in the early part of the 1900s, and she would tell me all kinds of stories about Great Depression and World War I, World War II, and, and living through so many changes. And, and while I had very little that I could understand about that, I enjoyed sitting on every single word. When I got a little bit older and, and entered, say, kindergarten and early elementary school, I remember my teachers and how they would tell stories. And there was one in particular that I was really fond of. She was a teacher who had this old raggedy blue couch that probably would not have ever worked in any of our homes now. But us in kindergarten, we loved it. So she would tell us that it was going to be story time. We'd run off and see who could get onto the couch first. And we would sit as she would tell us story after story. As I got older and, and became a teenager, I remember hanging out with my friends and, and sitting down in different venues where inevitably somebody would start talking about something that they had done that was probably a bit stupid, um, usually something about love won or love lost or that fight that always almost happened, never actually happened, it almost happened. If they had just said one more thing or done one more thing, it would have happened. Or, well, that time that we got away from the bad guys. You know what I'm talking about. When we, the good guys, ran away from the state trooper or the sheriff or the local police officer. Yeah, for those of you that are law enforcement, I apologize about that. Please don't give me a ticket. Man, y'all are a little slower than second service on that. I thought that was a decent one. I'll tell y'all those stories later um, when I'm not sitting up here with a microphone. Um, but growing up, I loved, loved, loved hearing stories. See, I wasn't much of a storyteller myself, but a story listener is something that's always been in my blood. Now, I just can't help it. See, when somebody's telling me a story, I can get sucked in. My, my vision and focus might narrow. I, I find that if it's a particularly adept storyteller, usually he or she helps me find a way into that story where I'm in the shoes or the clothes of the person who is being talked about and in a way that's meaningful and lasting. See, in Scripture, that happens too. In fact, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, what we find is that the story writers and storytellers put us in such a place that we often can identify with a character or two within a tale. Sometimes it's a character that is overcoming. Sometimes it's a character who's falling short. Sometimes it's a one that, that's crying in tears of joy, and other times it's one who's weeping 
in mourning. We find ourselves in these stories sucked in so that we too might understand what it means to be alive, to be loved by God, and to be human. The book of Genesis is a particularly amazing collection of stories that the narrator puts together from the beginning of time through what will eventually become the foundation for God's people, Israel. This is a book that I want to focus on for the next couple of weeks because I believe it allows us to hear the perspective of ones who are called by God. But I also allow, I think it allows us the ability to see just for a moment what it means to fall short. It gives us the space in between those two things that we might be able to reflect and have conversation on just what it means to be both called by God and yet human and fallible. Genesis is also that book that begins in the most sensible of all stories. It begins in the beginning. So in just a moment, we're going to find ourselves looking intently at the book of Genesis. But before we get there, will you pause with me in prayer? God, as you have invited us into this space, we pray that you would be with us in these moments. Be with the words that are spoken, the hearts that have been opened, and the moments in between. We pray this in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. In the beginning of creating, God formed the heavens and the earth. We've heard this phrase, we've heard these words over and over again, hundreds, thousands of times perhaps. We, we know what God was up to, creating animal life, creating human, creating land and stars, universe and water. God is creating in the first two chapters of Genesis all that we see around us. Now, I'm not going to read to you Genesis chapter 1 and 2 because that would probably take too long, but I do want to point out something that's reoccurring, something that happens over and over again, and it's that God stops, looks, and what God sees, God calls good. Good, not perfect, but good in that it's completed, and that God looks upon humans, God looks upon creation, and says it is good. And if we stopped right there, maybe things would have stayed good. But we as humans were also given this freedom of choice and freedom of will. So what we find in the following chapters of Genesis, beginning in chapter 3, is that that good becomes a little less good. In fact, by chapter 3, what we find is that a husband and wife, a man and a woman who have come together, end up in temptation. They fall short of what God was expecting. By chapter 4, we see that an older brother in envy murders his younger brother. And in chapters 5 and 6, that sin, that, that disobedience, that separation from God goes universal. And that the sons of God see the daughters of women and they begin to long after them. By chapter 7, we find that God is moving through creation in such a way that the good that has been broken, he wants to restore through a man and his family named Noah. Noah is told to build a ship, to build an ark, and in doing so will be saved through the process of floodwaters. But yet, even by chapter 9, what we find is that good is still broken. 
we're still finding ourselves far from what God once created, looked upon, and saw as good. And so we end up moving back and stepping back and finding that God is going to work with one family in particular. By chapter 11, we're introduced to this family, and it begins with this man by the name of Terah. Now, Terah is known really for two things. He's known to be called by God and to have responded, and he's the father of Abram. Abram, who is going to be the focal point of what we talk about today, is the son of Terah. He is a a man who is renowned in Israel's history. He's one that, if you're a child, you sing about who had many sons, um, at least Declan does now that he came back from Bible school a few weeks ago. And it's Terah that begins this process. But quickly Terah dies. And we're faced with this man named Abram. Now the storyteller of Genesis, beginning in chapter 12 and moving to the end of the book, is going to begin to tell us about the ups and downs, ins and outs, celebrations and defeats that Abram and his family will have. But it begins in a place that seems oh so hopeless. So this morning, I I ask simply for a few moments of your attention. As I do something that I'm very familiar with, but yet not that adept at, and telling a story. See, Abram for us becomes this framework and this model by which I believe God can possibly speak to us in these moments. And so I'm going to take a little bit of liberty If I'm really bad at this, I apologize. But I want to take on the persona for just a few seconds of the teller of the story. So bear with me and forgive me if it's bad. So there was a time before words were written. A time in which oral tradition was handed down from one generation to the other. In which lived this man named Abram. Abram is an older individual, by our standards, a senior of citizens. He is 75 years old, and he's married to his wife, Sarah. Sarah, too, is aged, about 65 years old, and Abram and Sarah are people of wealth, prosperity, and yet they're lacking something. Wealth and prosperity in their world and day included the ability to have land, to have livestock, to have servants and those who would serve you, but it also included one key thing that Abram and Sarah lack, and that's children. See, in that world, in that day, in that time, for you to be an individual of prosperity and progeny, you must have one that can carry on your name. For Abram and Sarah, they're sitting in this childless place in in which they have no hope and no future. See, when they die, their property becomes that of their servants. Their name actually expires with them. Their hope is all but exhausted. But yet they have a call, and, and that God has called them to something pretty spectacular. He's called them out of the land that they were in to go and to journey into this new place, this, this unknown area in which they will become something new. I can imagine both for Abram and Sarah, this is a bit of a relief, knowing that they don't have to be around the constant reminder, the people they have grown up with, that they have no hope in future. See, one can only imagine watching your relatives, your friends, your family, all around you with children, and yet you have none. 
For them, this would have been a sign of shame because they would have believed that God had cursed them. Not that just biology may have created some sort of an understanding that we don't fully understand, but that God actively has an issue and a problem with you and that it's God's hand that has caused this. So when Abram and Sarah get this call and they move from this land into this place in which they will become something more, they are all too happy. But see, there's something about this story that I haven't quite said yet, and that's what happens when they're called. See, at 75 and 65, both Abram and Sarah find themselves in this place in which God gives them a promise. God says, you're going to be an amazing couple. In fact, you're going to have all the property, all the land, all the stuff that you want, but I'm going to go a step further. You will also become parents. A father, Abram, a mother, Sarah, to not just one child, but to a nation. In fact, God's own word says that they will become so numerous in descendants that you would be able to count the stars in the open sky or the sand upon a desert beach before you could count the ones that will come after. Now that's a promise with some oomph. It's a promise that steps into a life that seems to be hopeless and gives to it hope. (laughs) So here they are. Two senior of citizens, given a promise and given a hope, but God doesn't stop there. No, God goes on and he says this very particular line. He says, Abram and Sarah, through you, You will be blessed, but not just for your sake, but for the sake of others. In fact, you will become the vehicle, the conduit, the medium through which my blessing will come upon the world. You are called to be different. In fact, what God is saying here in essence is, I created these things and they were good and good has fallen short. But yet through you, Abram, through you, Sarah, I am going to do something new and I am restoring good. I am bringing back that which was once good and you are going to be the ones that usher it in. You will be my people and I will be your God. Now, If I'm being honest, I wish the story stopped here. I wish that I could cut it off right there and simply say that all was well following this conversation, this promise with Abram and Sarah. I wish I could say that the fact that they hear God's promise, they accept it, they even worship God and and build altars and, and venture around in this new uncharted territory. I wish that I could say that that was the end of the story. But I can't. See, the story has a second part for us this morning, a part in which the the narrator has brought us to this climactic peak, and then something happens. Something beyond the control of Abram or Sarah, something happens in the world in which they live, and the rain begins to cease. The crops begin to wither. Sun, like what we're probably going to see today and for this week, hits. I do not like hot weather, by the way. Famine is upon the land of promise. A famine that is so bad that Abram and Sarah and all that they have 
begin to have to wrestle with what do we do? See, the one who was called blessed is now wrestling with what it means to be blessed because he's watching around him as livestock is perishing, crops are withering, and all of humankind is beginning to step back and have adverse health effects. Now, I don't know what you would do, but I know for me and my family, I would look for the most logical place in which I could find life. That's what Abram does. See, they hear or they know of Egypt, this place that is said to be a a place in which famine doesn't strike, a place in which there is always going to be hope and prosperity. They, They hear of Egypt and they begin to travel in that direction. That's when the story, though, takes a turn. See, I'd like to imagine this, this journey happens like this. Um, I saddle up all their animals, and they're moving that way. And, and Abram starts hearing these rumors, and, and he gets a little bit nervous about this. I don't know if he does or doesn't, but what I do know is what he asks of his wife next. And this is what he says. He says, hey, Sarah, you're hot. You know I think that about you, right? Well, I'm afraid that the folks in the land that we're going to, the Egyptians, I'm scared they're going to think that too. In fact, I've heard that if they think someone is attractive like you, they don't tend to like them to be married. In fact, I think for our sake, for the betterment of us, you should probably lie and tell them that you're my sister. In fact, I think if you were to do that, that's probably going to go well for both of us. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, they're going to take you anyway, so might as well save my skin, right? The craziest thing happens, and Sarah hears this and says, good plan. I'm okay with that. She green lights, she thumbs up to, to Abram what this deceiving framework is going to contain and They get to Egypt, and it happens. In fact, as they arrive in Egypt, what we find is that Sarah is so attractive that not only the common Egyptian, but the Egyptian official actually sees her, takes notice of her, and then moves towards her. So much so that they say to Pharaoh, the ruler, the head executive of Egypt, come check out this lady. Pharaoh, in seeing Sarah, decides, yes, she's very pleasing to the eye. I want her. I desire her. And so the scriptures tell us that he takes her and she becomes his wife. Time passes. During this time, Abram is taken care of as the brother of Sarah. He's given more property, more livestock. He's given more money, more resources than one could ever imagine. It's good with Abram. But then something else happens. See, God's plan is for Sarah and Abram, not Sarah and the Pharaoh. God's plan is to bless through Abram and Sarah, not to curse. But curse is what must happen. See, the Pharaoh somehow or another figures out Abram and Sarah are not telling him the truth. What he sees and hears and understands is that they are not brother and sister, but husband and wife. 
In fact, the scriptures tell us the reason for this is that his entire household, the Pharaoh's entire household, becomes levied under a curse because of the deception that they've put forth. Now get this, don't, don't hear this different than, than how it should be. The man who is said to bless the entire world has made a decision that has cursed an entire nation. Don't let that escape us for very long because the next thing that happens is Pharaoh confronts Abram. He, he confronts him and he says, hey man, what's the deal? You, you told me she was your sister. I took her as my wife. Now everybody in my household is cursed and sick. What gives? Abram, to his credit, if credit can ever be given, doesn't decide to dispute this. He doesn't claim ignorance. He doesn't even excuse his behavior. He simply sits there silent. And Pharaoh kicks him out. (laughs) Stories, right? Just when we think all is going well, when things are going good, there's this climactic moment in which the main character has to make a decision. In the case of Abram and Sarah, they fail. Just when the one who is said to bless the entire world has the first opportunity to bless the world, he falls short. I wish the story was written differently. Because honestly, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with the fact that, that Abram is called upon to be this amazing resource for all who will see, hear, and come after him. And yet, in his first chance to be that, he falls on his face. He falls flat on his face. I really don't know what to do with that. But see, I think that's the key to a good story. Not knowing what to do with it. Having more questions than answers. And in fact, what a good story does is it encourages us to have these conversations amongst ourselves. And so, if you know anything about me, what you know is that I, I don't necessarily give straightforward answers to any sort of a question. In fact, if you've ever been in life group with me, it might aggravate you. If it does, I'm sorry. But I try to pose these really good questions, not because I think that that I have some spectacular way of posing questions, but I think that if we ask good questions, it creates good dialogue, and it invites God to speak to us in a way that straightforwardness just doesn't. I think the narrator in Genesis does this, not just in this story, but in every story we're going to venture into over the next three weeks. And so what I want to do is something a little less conventional. I want to pose questions for you, but I'm not going to give any answer. I want to ask a question, not because I think it's some sort of an amazing, spectacular question that nobody else has ever thought of, but because I believe it invites us in to dialogue. Dialogue with our family, with our friends, with our life groups, with those that might be sitting with you in the pew or those that might be sitting beside you at work. Those that you may walk with in the evening or work out with in the morning. Those that you may be finding yourselves with at lunch or dinner. I think the product of good storytelling is good questions and good dialogue. So if this drives you crazy, that's okay. It's going to keep happening. But I'm going to ask five questions today. Not necessarily to have an answer, 
but simply to be able to ask a question that hopefully will spurn us into life. I'm going to jump right in so I don't have some sort of a cool intro, but forgive me for that. So we're going to start with the first of these five questions and that this. What does hope look like for the hopeless? Have you ever met somebody that's hopeless or at least feels hopeless? See, Abram and Sarah in, in this story are the epitome of, of hopelessness in their day and time. They're an aged couple beyond where one would expect to be childbearing years. They're at this point in their life in which they're starting to realize there's a lot more yesterdays than tomorrows. And yet they're childless. They have lost hope in a world in which childbearing is that place of hope and blessing. See, I've seen that a lot around Goldsboro and, and Wayne County. People who, who may be aged in, in a couple or widowed or, or widower that has no children. Someone who's asking, who's going to be there for me tomorrow? I've seen it in transplanted individuals, whether here by choice or, or here on orders, who, who don't have that community and that connection around them. I've met people who have all but given up on themselves because they feel like everybody around them might have given up on them. They're hopeless and looking for hope. So the question is, what does hope look like for them? The second question I believe that this story brings to us is, how do we step out of the vacuum and live with others? So point of confession, it's real easy for me to get off at five o'clock, to get into my car and drive from my office to my house, to park in my two-car garage and close the door, to walk inside and to sit down and turn on my TV and forget about the world around me. It's easy for me to be able to step into a vacuum in which I am both insulated and isolated, not recognizing that the world around me exists. See, for Abram and Sarah, they were called upon to not just be blessed themselves, but to bless others, to to be the vehicle, to be that medium through which blessing would be communicated. And the first opportunity they get, the first chance, they fail at it. (laughs) Abram falls back into that vacuum in which his world is only this big, and he only takes care of himself. See, I spent 10 years in, in vocational ministry and thought that I knew a lot about the needs of the world, but I worked for United Way of Wayne County for about 24 hours and found out just how far off I was. See, there's needs in our backyards in front. There's needs in our communities and neighborhoods, but also needs that affect us in ways that we don't even understand. And we are called upon, just as Abram and Sarah were, to be the conduit, of blessing to those in need. So let me ask that question again. How do we step out of that vacuum in order to live with others? Question three. How do you plan for the journey? See, let's let's be honest here. I asked this question in first service, and I'll ask it again here. How many of you have Amazon Prime? So if you ordered something today and it wasn't here by, we'll give them some grace, Wednesday, what would you be thinking? (laughs) Something's gone wrong, right? I remember growing up and and they 
would sell stuff on TV and it said four to six weeks for delivery. If we got an order for something and it took four to six weeks, we would have forgotten about it by now. (laughs) How do you plan for something that's going to take all sorts of time? What are the safeguards that you put in place? How how do you keep on track in a journey that we know is going to take longer than we want it to and always more than we expect? See, fair or unfair, Abram is on this journey with God at a very, very early stage. And he's not prepared. So he botches it. He, he falls face down and, and it doesn't look good. It, it's as if we had a 16-year-old. And I don't have one of those yet, thank God. I'm not even close. Um, but that 16-year-old's just got his or her license. And you look at him and you say, don't speed. Obey traffic rules. Don't wreck the car. Three simple rules. And, and you hand him the keys, and, and that child ends up, admittedly like I was, speeding, disobeying traffic laws. Fortunately, I didn't get into any accidents, but accidents can happen. And we sit back and say, well, we, we, we told you to do it. We told you not to, to do that. We told you what to do. Fair or unfair, early in a journey, it's really hard for us to be able to set the right pace, and the right path. There's lessons that we're going to learn along the way that we have no understanding or, or comprehension of at this point. And so I'm going to break my rule just a little bit right here about the whole answer piece because there's a quote that I came across as I was doing some research for this message. And it's a quote by an 